there, nerdlings. This is Ash. And this is Matt. And you're listening to Crime Time Nerds, a sister podcast. And now, nerdlings, let's grab our flashlights and join us as we venture down into the dark world of true crime together. There are crimes that forever wound a community. They sit there and fester, never truly healing even when time takes slowly by. The weeks may become years, years become decades, and decades become a half century. And yet the wound is still open, still painful, and still raw. On February 19th of 1958, a wound that would never heal was torn open, as a small Vermont town would be dealt a blow that would remain for the next 63 years. A family lost someone they loved dearly, a community lost a well-respected businesswoman, and a state lost its feelings of security and safety. It all began with an innocent visit to a local flooring shop in Barrie, Vermont, and ended with one of the most gruesome murders to have ever occurred in Vermont history. And with that, nerdlings, it's time to leave the light, grab our snow boots and a flashlight as we walk the icy streets of Barrie, Vermont, back in February of 1958. Winter in Vermont drapes itself across the landscape, It clings on to each hill, mountaintop, road, and building. February 19th of 1958 was no exception. Snow was still on the ground, the air was still crisp, and winter wasn't planning on letting go of its icy grasp anytime soon. It was on a chilly Wednesday afternoon when John Corrigan decided to stop into the floor covering store, a small local flooring shop located at 8 Merchant Street, right off of Main Street in Barrie, Vermont. John had just picked up his five-year-old son from school that day, and he needed to get some tools to finish some flooring work he was doing at his home. It was only 4.35 p.m., but dusk was beginning to fall over the small New England town. John Corrigan and his young son walked into the floor covering store, noting that it was quiet in the shop. There were no other patrons in the store at the time of their entering. This didn't initially strike John as overtly strange as he had come into the shop on previous occasions and noted that the owner of the store was sometimes in the back of the shop. The floor-covering store was a well-respected fixture in Barrie at its time. The store was owned by both Leo Baker and his wife, Doris Baker. John and his son made their way further into the shop, assuming that Mrs. Baker, who usually ran the shop while her husband, Leo, often went and installed the flooring throughout the town, would have heard them come in and would be out to greet them shortly. John drew closer to the desk that held the store cash register in hopes that Mrs. Baker would hear him walk up and come out from the back and assist them. As he neared the desk, he spotted what looked to be two legs protruding from behind the desk. Initially, John's mind tried to convince him it was just a mannequin laying there. It was to his horror that he soon realized that the legs belonged to that of a human being, not a plastic inanimate object. Within seconds, his shocked mind registered that the legs belonged to that of Mrs. Dorothy Baker, co-owner of the floor-covering store, 45-year-old mother of two teenage girls, and a well-respected and loved member of the small, Barry community. John pushed his young son behind him, trying to shield the child from the bloody scene before them. John realized that they needed help, and so he grabbed his son and ushered him out of the store. He quickly deposited his son with a known local acquaintance, and then he ran to the local Barry Pharmacy. The Barry Pharmacy had a phone, the one tool John needed in order to contact the police and try to get help for Mrs. Baker. It was only 4.41 when John made the call, only six minutes since he had initially spotted the legs 
of Mrs. Doris E. Baker protruding out from behind her store desk. John's call would summon the medical examiner, Thomas P. Dunleavy, State's Attorney Frederick M. Reed, and the newly founded Vermont State Police, as well as the Barry Chief of Police, Floyd Chandler. Despite John's quick thinking and dash to get help, Mrs. Doris E. Baker was pronounced dead at the crime scene. The 45-year-old store owner, wife, and mother of two looked to have been severely beaten with some type of blunt instrument. The attacker then took a weapon, which authorities believed was one of the linoleum knives belonging to the store, and then they proceeded to slash Doris Baker across her breasts, her lower abdomen, her midsection, and her face. The attacker then took the linoleum knife, and with one rage-filled savage slash, the killer slit Mrs. Doris E. Baker's throat, cutting into her throat so deeply that the attacker severed her jugular as well as her air passage. Mrs. Doris Baker was thought to have still been alive when her throat was cut, despite the brutal beating she had received and the previous slashes across her body with the linoleum knife. Investigators discovered that despite the brutality of the attack on Doris Baker, her outer clothing remained fairly intact, but her undergarments were torn, suggesting that the assailant had attempted to sexually assault Mrs. Doris Baker. There were conflicting news reports on whether or not Doris had actually been sexually assaulted, and as this was 1958, DNA evidence, rape kits, and forensic sciences had yet to become a usable tool for investigators. So it's possible she was raped and it went undetected at that time. State's detective Gregory Lequier was one of the first investigators on the scene. He and several officers, as well as the state's medical examiner, Thomas P. Dunleavy, began to try and comb through the evidence left at the floor-covering store. It was now after 5 p.m. on February 19, 1958, a little over an hour since Mrs. Doris E. Baker's body had been discovered. While investigators searched through the crime scene looking for the murder weapons and any evidence that would tell them who would attack the 45-year-old woman, whispers began to crawl through the town of Barrie, Vermont. Barrie's a small town, and like most New England small towns, there aren't a lot of secrets. What happened to Doris Baker spread throughout the town like a wildfire. Paranoia, fear, and unease began to seep into the soil of the town, digging in its roots and leaving everyone feeling unnerved. The growing group of investigators began to fill the sales floor of the floor covering store on 8 Merchant Street. Chief of the Barry Police Department, Floyd Chandler, had also arrived on the scene. The officers had no way of knowing that their night was about to get even more unnerving. The hours began to tick by while police took crime scene photos, mapped out the blood pattern from Doris Baker's body, double-checked potential escape routes out of the floor covering store, and looked for the murder weapon potentially hidden among the secret corners of the store. While investigators were looking for any clues into the murder of Doris Baker, another crime was occurring. At 8 p.m., the town of Barry's St. Monica's Church was broken into, adding to the chaos and terror that had already begun to slither through the town. The perpetrator stole the rectory's on-hand cash, which was roughly $100, and vanished into the night. A few minutes after 8 p.m., the St. Monica's parochial school was lit aflame. Townsfolk flocked to the inferno, watching as the once sacred halls of the parochial school became engulfed with flames. In one night, Barry had suffered through a horrendous and brutal murder, a robbery, and what looked to be an arson. A town who hardly saw that amount of crime in a year would be befallen with all that cruelty in the matter of a four-hour span. 
With these crimes in such a short amount of time, the town would find itself falling into a cavern that seemed to immerse its citizens in a spiral of fear and terror that would drill into the town's very core. The total damage to the town would be irreparable in an emotional aspect. A family had lost its beloved matriarch, a church's goodwill was taken advantage of, and the town lost a building that bestowed knowledge upon its young citizens. It was no wonder that the citizens of Barry began to fear the chaos that had consumed their town in the course of one night. A small New England town that had always felt safe no longer could go to bed without locking their doors and windows at night. Whispers began to grow louder throughout the town as to just what had happened the night of February 19, 1958. Was Doris Baker's murderer on a rampage? Had the killer murdered Doris Baker then created a distraction by breaking into the St. Monica's Church rectory and stealing? Then in a final act of defiance, had this savage killer casually strode to the St. Monica's parochial school and lit a fire that would cost the town of Barrie upwards of 150000 in damages? Could all of this pain and suffering be at the hands of only one person? While the town watched the St. Mary's parochial school burn down, investigators made a discovery that they hoped would lead to finding Doris Baker's killer. Hidden in the bottom of a linoleum roll was a large, deadly sharp, curved linoleum knife. A knife that cuts through linoleum smoothly would have no problems cutting through a person's flesh and slitting their throat open. While searching the floor covering store, investigators obtained three hammers used for hammering down flooring nails. It was thought that one of these hammers may have been the blunt instrument that had been used to beat Doris Baker with. Police would also find that behind a desk near the now lifeless body of Doris Baker sat her purse. Her purse contained over $150 worth of checks, bills, and loose change. The cash register that sat upon the floor coverings checkout desk was open and contained several checks as well as a small amount of cash. Very little money, if any, looked to have been taken from Doris and the store. Investigators used fingerprint dust across the whole store in hopes of obtaining the fingerprints of their killer amongst the store's various tools and fixtures. They also explored the back door in hopes of securing possible footprints in the snow that could help lead to their killer. But the back door appeared to be blocked by the recent snowfall and no footprints existed, showing that the killer had left by the front entrance to the store. Police and the medical examiner were able to narrow down the time of death for Mrs. Doris E. Baker as being between 4.20 p.m. and 4.35 p.m. that night. The last customer to see Mrs. Baker alive had been in the store at approximately 4.15 to 4.20. Mr. John Corrigan would find Doris at 4.35 p.m., meaning that Doris had been attacked, possibly raped, and murdered within a 15-minute time span. Investigators would have their hands full over the course of the next few days. Between the fire, the theft, and of course, the murder of Doris Baker, the police forces were stretched thin. Long hours that went far into the night consumed the officers and investigators looking for a murderer within the ranks of their very own town. Now that the crime scene had been secured and evidence obtained, it was time to begin looking for the suspects amongst the citizens of Barrie. Could one of their own have brutally murdered Mrs. Doris E. Baker? And if so, why would they have so viciously attacked her in the way that they did? Investigators were able to rule out several potential suspects early on. Mr. Leo R. Baker, Doris's husband, had left the floor covering store at roughly 1.30 p.m. 
with the shop's assistant to lay linoleum at a customer's home across town. The two men didn't return to the store until approximately 5.15 p.m., over half an hour since Doris's body had been discovered by John Corrigan and his five-year-old son. For all accounts and purposes, the Bakers seemed to have a happy marriage, two teenage daughters, and a successful business. It did not seem like Leo Baker would have any reason to murder his wife, and so he was quickly ruled out as a suspect in the murder of his wife, as was his assistant. That night, investigators gathered up their evidence, trying their best to secure the crime scene and make sure that no stone was left unturned. Their search throughout the floor covering store led to the findings of three hammers that were possible murder weapons and the linoleum knife they had uncovered. Near the parochial school that had just been lit on fire, police obtained a fourth hammer. The thought was that the fire and robbery that night, as well as Doris Baker's murder, were all related. Investigators took the four hammers and the linoleum knife and sent them over for testing to the Boston laboratories to verify for any possible human blood residue. Three of the hammers were found in the store and were used for hammering in linoleum flooring. The fourth hammer was the one found near the parochial school and was the type of hammer that was used to hammer out fenders on cars. With the evidence secured and sent away for testing, the arduous task of interviewing every potential witness and suspect would begin. While investigators began to question anyone and everyone who had been in town that day and may have seen something that could crack the murder of Doris E. Baker, panic started to overtake the town. Crimes such as the one that was afflicted upon Mrs. Baker were uncommon in the small New England town. People had became fixated on locking their doors in a town where that was once unheard of. Then-Governor of Vermont Joseph Johnson had offered an $1,000 reward for any information leading to the killer or killers of Mrs. Baker. During the interviews conducted throughout the town, a picture began to be painted of a possible suspect. After gathering witness testimony regarding any unknown persons that had been in town that day, police were able to put together a description of a possible suspect to be on the lookout for. Police released the description to the public at large regarding a man who had been unknown to the area and had been seen by several witnesses. He was described as such. Had a ruddy complexion, like one who is an alcoholic. He weighed around 185 pounds. He was about 5'10", roughly between the ages of 45 and 50. Wore a gray tweed jacket and a gray felt hat. It turned out the description matched that of a salesman who had actually been in the store that week and who was not from Vermont. After tracking the man down, police were able to question the man, but he was easily absolved of having anything to do with the murder of Mrs. Doris E. Baker. Hysteria overtook the town at this point. Police began to release statements alluding to the fact that the killer may be a crazed psychopath or a drug-addled killer, a boogeyman of sorts that may have lurked and stalked the unsuspecting Doris E. Baker that day in order to obtain the money from the store's cash register. Police and other investigators reached out to the Veteran Hospital in White River Junction in order to try and rule out suspects. Unfortunately, there were no leads from that investigation. Mrs. Baker was laid to rest that following Sunday, only a few days after her murder, at the Elmwood Cemetery Vault in Barrie on February 23rd. Her funeral services were held at the Heading Methodist Church in Barrie, and the church was filled to capacity. 
the flowers were considered the largest scene in the town of Barrie in years. On February 26th, police chief Floyd Chandler gave a news conference where he gave current updates on the case. At that time, less than one week since her murder, over a hundred people were interrogated by the police. At that conference, Chandler was asked about the motive for the killing, and he stated he felt that it was intended to be a robbery and that the murder came after. He felt that the reason she had been so viciously attacked was that she either knew her assailant or they were afraid she could ID them. He also stated that he felt it would be a relatively tall man who would have attacked Mrs. Baker as she stood at 5'8". He felt the entirety of her attack could have been in two to three minutes. Chandler also stated that Boston had determined that there was human blood on the knife, but it had yet to be established if it belonged to Mrs. Baker. Chief Chandler also noted that her chair and desk did not look to be disrupted, which led him to believe that the assailant had come in, Mrs. Baker rose from her chair, and that is when the attack occurred. Her typewriter and the top of her desk also looked to be untouched. A coin was also found a few blocks away from the linoleum flooring shop, which looked to also have blood on it. The coin was a 50-cent piece found at Ken's Calso Station, a gas station, located on Lower North Main Street. The coin was given to the gas station attendant on the day that Mrs. Baker was murdered. Unfortunately, the gas station attendant tended to two men around that same time, and he was unsure of which young man gave him the coin. One was driving a 52 or 53 Mercury with a Vermont license plate number, beginning with the letter A, and he was young, in his early 20s. He was described as wearing a garbadine top coat and had a round red face. Chief Chandler also noted that the murderer would have had to come out of the front door of the building, and it was early evening, not quite dark yet, so there was a good chance locals in town would have seen him exit the building after the murder of Doris Baker. A week after the murder, Chief Chandler received the report on the coin from Boston. It was human blood on the coin, but it did not belong to Mrs. Baker. Again, a lead came in, but it would lead to no arrest. On February 28th, a man came forth and admitted to the robbery of the church rectory. His name was Douglas John Ferrier. He was a 21-year-old salesman. Ferrier did admit to about a dozen church break-ins in Vermont since December 22nd. A week after his arrest and confession to the local robberies, police announced that he was not a suspect in the murder or of setting fire to the parochial school. On March 10th, Police Chief Chandler received the report from Boston regarding the four hammers. The reports were empty, showing that there were no relation to the hammers being used as the tool to bludgeon Mrs. Baker. At this point, it had gone into being a full-blown manhunt spanning the states of Massachusetts, Maine, New York, and even Canada. Remember, we all are very close to the Canadian border. A Maine police lieutenant joined the Barry police force to investigate the murder as he had a similar case in Maine when a 26-year-old woman was found dead with her throat slashed in a similar manner in October of 57. Her name was Ethel Kelly, and she was a mother of five. She too had been beaten about her head and had similar slashes upon her body, similar to the wounds inflicted on Mrs. Baker. Ethel Kelly was found in a marsh in Auburn, Maine, 
We were unable to ascertain if this lead had proven inconclusive, as we were unable to find any follow-up on whether Ethel Kelly's murder had ever been solved. Orville Gibson's unsolved murder would be discovered in March of 58, overshadowing the case of Doris that year. Detective Lequier was pulled off the case in order to assist with the Gibson murder, as were several other detectives. In early April, Chief Chandler requested that all people turn over the negatives they had of photos they took of the fire that night that Doris was murdered. He was in hopes that perhaps someone had captured the assailant without realizing it. All of Mrs. Baker's clothing was given to the notable Boston criminologist Richard Ford in hopes of finding some link to a possible suspect. In early April, the linoleum knife report did come back from Boston, showing that the knife did show traces of human blood. Police declined at that time to state whether the blood belonged to Doris Baker. Time slipped past, as it always does, ticking by weeks, then months, and eventually years. And yet Mrs. Doris E. Baker's killer was never caught. Chief Chandler never gave up on finding her killer. He looked for her killer all throughout the decades always hoping for that one break that would show up in her case, always hoping he would finally be able to close the chapter on Doris E. Baker's brutal murder that evening in February of 1958. In the years between 1958 and 1960, nearly 75 people took lie detector tests in relation to the murder of Doris Baker, similar to what we saw in Orville Gibson's case. Over 25 officers had worked the case in that time from Barrie to state police, all working to try and give closure to her grieving family and to bring peace and stability back to a town that had had it viciously stolen from that one night in 1958. The 60s would turn to the 70s. Chief Chandler would revisit the case over and over during those years, still seeking answers, still searching lead after lead. The 80s came and went with no leads. And then in 1990, Chief Floyd Chandler, the man who never forgot about Doris E. Baker, the man who looked for her all those years passed away. He never saw the man who murdered Doris E. Baker brought to justice. Doris's case remains unsolved. There are possible suspects mentioned over the years, possible leads followed up, and as always, countless theories. But at the end of the day, 63 years later, Doris E. Baker, the co-owner of the floor covering store in Barrie, Vermont, remains a cold case, her killer never having been caught. So over the years, there's been possible theories as to what happened to Doris E. Baker back in 1958. One theory that's been floated around has been that there was a possible serial killer linking Doris's murder to that of Ethel Kelly, who was 42, of Auburn, Maine. I actually wasn't able to find if her murderer had ever been solved, so we're going to continue to explore this just as it seems like a somewhat promising lead. So I just want to be able to rule that in or out. And the murders are exceedingly similar just in their nature. The other theory is that Douglas John Ferrier did in fact murder Doris Baker. Douglas was the man who had confessed to the robberies of the rectory. He was the most promising of the suspects and he had admitted to robbing the church rectory. But I will point out robbery and murder, they're just very different things. So I kind of want to draw attention to that. So kind of going into Douglas John Ferrier a little bit more. So Ferrier originally was questioned in the crimes and he was sentenced on robbery crimes. 
but he actually had an alibi that seemed to check out for the murder. A few years later, he would actually subsequently escape from prison, which was in 1960, and he tried to leave the area. Luckily, he was caught within three days. He was armed, but he never hurt a single person, and he actually held a woman and her daughter hostage, but let them go. So it just doesn't seem like he was the violent offender type. He just doesn't seem to have that instinct because why wouldn't he have killed the woman that he had held hostage when he had escaped? And he also had actually confessed to the robberies in 57. Right after the cop informed him, he had robbed an actual nunnery. And so John felt extreme guilt because he was Catholic. So to me, it seems like if he felt guilt and admitted to the crimes of the robbery, I kind of can't imagine that he would have, you know, a murder is even worse. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know if I really buy into the Douglas Farrier claims. I think he was kind of just really honestly in the wrong place at the wrong time. And he had been all throughout the state conducting robberies. I think he did something like 12. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, so it wasn't like he, this was kind of his thing. Mm -hmm. He would come in as a salesman. He was a con artist. But being a con artist and being a murderer are very, very different. And all of those cases, he never had a single violent charge put against him. So it just doesn't compute. Mm -hmm. The violence that was performed on Doris Baker, I mean, that was a lot of rage. You don't do what was done to her just for a robbery. Mm -hmm. That seems very personal. In January of 1961, state detective Gregory Lequier went and interviewed Douglas John Ferrier yet again. One thing that had come up in the investigation several years later was a man that was named, and I have saw this both ways, so I'm, I'm going to say both options. I'm not really sure which is the correct, but he was either named Perrin or Param Youngblood, and he was actually a hearing-impaired kidnapper that was from Georgia, and he was thought to be a possible suspect, but the man actually died in a gunfight in Georgia over the murder of an eight-year-old girl. He had kidnapped her, and the police ended up breaking out into a gunfight with him. There was nothing but eyewitness testimony after the story broke that put Perrin in Vermont. And at the time of Doris Baker's murder, there's no evidence that he was even in town. So he was more than likely still in the South. And the honest answer is, while his name came up and there was kind of that fear of a, of foreigners, is the honest answer, or uh, let's say there was some racism going in, I think, a little bit. He, honestly, in my opinion, is probably the least likely of the suspects. More than likely, like I said, he wasn't even in Vermont at the time of her murder. The other name that has been mentioned is Edward Coolidge Jr. He was a Manchester, New Hampshire man, and he had been arrested on the murders of two young women in New Hampshire in 1964. So I think he's a promising lead there. I would like to do another episode just going over those murders. They've never been formally linked, mm -hmm. but there is some similarities to those two women's abductions and then subsequent murders that are similar to Doris's case. So he's another one. In that case, it would actually make him a serial killer. Mm -hmm. I personally don't think any of the suspects sounded like they would be the murderer. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know. The way I see it is... This person did this in, what, like a 15, 20-minute span? Mm -hmm. um, I almost believe this person may have worked with the couple if they... No? No, they only had one assistant, and he was rolled wow. out. He was with um Because I Leo. wonder, like, if they had, like, a cleaner or, like, anything. Because to find... To be able to grab that linoleum knife and... I mean, I don't know. Maybe they had him displayed in the shop or if they were easily accessible. 
Or maybe Doris grabbed the knife and the killer actually got the knife from her. It's possible. I don't know. It's it's tough. What do you think? I think the person came in the front door. I think that they may have watched the building for a while. Mm-hmm. I think that they would have had to have seen that Leo and the assistant left at 1.30. Yeah. And knew that Doris was by herself. So I do think she was... I, I agree with Floyd Chandler on this. I think they watched her. I think they knew she was vulnerable. Yeah, like the stalking. and Absolutely. Which is why probably the salesman is also mm-hmm. on the list because he would have known mm-hmm. he'd been in town. Yeah, and they were able to rule him out. But I would be curious how they ruled him out, what his alibi yeah. was. Yep. He was a stranger to town, so who was vouching for him? Yeah. So this is kind of why I would love to get uh, more information on this case and, and find the original case records for this one. Yeah. But I think some of the things that I would would pose is that I think at the time in 1958... People were very hesitant to use the word serial killer. It wasn't a thing. Mm-hmm. The thing I will say about Doris's murder is it is vicious. There's an absolute rage and hatred of women behind this crime. Mm-hmm. The amount of slashing to her breast, to her stomach, everything about this was an attack on women. Yeah, That to me screams more of a serial killer type behavior yep. and a rage killer than someone who maybe even knew her. Yeah. I think, unfortunately for Doris, she was just in this situation where she was vulnerable and this person saw her. It's very possible the person came to town with the intent of murdering somebody. I kind of lean towards they were transient. I think they were somebody who had snuck into the town, yeah. did what they did, and then left. I think they left before the fire ever hit. I do think that that person lit the fire. I do think it's the same person who did both. Yeah. Uh, I think the fire was absolutely a distraction, and so they could get out of town. Because remember, the police would have been all over that building at that point. They weren't going to be getting anywhere around there. Yeah, that's true. Because I don't think they had banked on John Corrigan coming in as quickly as he did. It was the end of the day. You know how it is in Vermont. End of day, like... Five o'clock, everything starts to get quiet here, especially in wintertime. Yep, definitely. And in 1958, it would have been even more so. Corrigan just had happened to stop in with his son to go get, like, some odds and ends. Not necessarily something you would expect at the end of the day Mm -hmm. for a linoleum flooring. Most people are going to be putting their orders in earlier. My thoughts are, did the killer ever leave? Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? I think that John came in, the killer hid, which would give them more time. Yep. John didn't see them. He wasn't looking for them. He was too much in shock over finding Doris's Baker's body. He quickly splits to get his son out of there. Yeah, and goes to get help. And in that time, who was at the store? Yep. No one was looking. It's very possible that that's when the killers snuck out. Mm-hmm. To me, that makes more sense because it's a 15-minute time span. I think he had murdered. I think he hid when he heard the door open. I think he had just murdered her. And I think then he ran. Yep. And John left. Which would put this all in perspective. And it gives the killer a little bit more time to get out of Dodge. Mm-hmm. He then realizes that the cops are now swarming the area, which I'm very familiar with this area. I'm very, I actually know the building. It's a very Main Street, New England type looking block. Kind of like Church Street, really. Yeah. So if you get out of there, you're going to be spotted pretty quickly. So I think he snuck out when John rushed out. Then as the police were swarming, He ended up kind of going and hiding out elsewhere, Mm -hmm. then lit the fire to distract them and got out of Dodge. That's my theory. Yeah. I genuinely don't think this person knew Doris at all. Yeah, it's it's tough to say because like you said, 
back then serial killer wasn't really a term that mm-hmm. was thrown around a lot so yeah this person could have just seen Doris one day mm-hmm. maybe even had come into the store earlier like yeah. that week yeah. and just kind of gotten like an obsession it could um, be because you said it it does seem like this person had it out you know this I mean if, if this was just coming in for a robbery I wouldn't think that yeah. it would be that vicious of a murder I think they tried to make it look like a robbery I don't think this was a robbery yeah there wasn't enough money taken and there was enough money in that store yeah or goods in that store to a steal that were yeah worth a and lot her purse was right there too her purse was right so. there it was not taken so and the only I think there was like something like $40 missing yeah and that's questionable at best so I don't know I, I don't buy it I wish I could have found if Ethel Kelly, if her crime up in Maine had ever been solved. There were several murders in this area in New England that were very similar of women at that time. I I wasn't able to find much information on those. Yeah. So I'm still piecing those together. But I would be curious uh, to see where this goes on that. Yeah. And it is tough to not to bring another serial killer into this conversation. But if you were to look at Israel Keys, Mm. he did a bunch of bank robberies. Mm -hmm. Um, and then he was a vicious murderer. So you never know, like they're not necessarily exclusive. Yeah. I know that the police really in the beginning thought that Douglas Farrier was their prime suspect. They kept going back to him time and time again. Yeah. I just think that Douglas was kind of in the wrong place at the wrong time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, doesn't make what he did right by any means, but there's nothing about this guy that screams killer. Yeah, yeah. He would have murdered the two women when he had the chance. And the one I thought was interesting was Edward Coolidge. He's one I want to research a little bit more because his crimes were were very similar. And I just, I don't know, I think there might be something more there. So I'd be curious to really dig into his case a little bit more Mm -hmm. and see if there's a correlation between the two. Yeah. Especially because it's only a few years later. Yeah. It's just crazy that this town went through arson... Oh, a robbery, God, a, night. a murder. It's yeah. it's crazy. And if I were to see this from an outside perspective, which mm. we we are, but if I didn't have as much knowledge as we did on this case, I would be like, oh yeah, arson, robbery, a killer. They're all they're definitely all related. But uh, I oh, yeah. I agree with you about the arson and the and the killing. I think the arson and the killing are related. I think the robbery was just pure chance. Yeah, I yep. think. I mean, Vermont's small. We know that. You can get from Burlington to Barrie in 30 minutes. Yeah. You can get from St. Albans to Barrie in an hour. Yeah. Like, they're really not far away from each other. It sounds like it's far away when you're talking mm-hmm. about these towns. Vermont's not big. You can cross yep. the state in two hours. So anyone doing these crimes could have been in and out of the state before the cops even got wind of them. Yep, Definitely. This is a case that I think both of us have agreed we want to kind of keep an eye on and keep looking into. It's one that has a lot of layers to it, so I'd be curious to kind of dig in more, see what what more we can find. I really want to dig into, and we maybe will do an episode on this a little more, but um, yeah, I would be curious to dig into the Edward Coolidge Jr. angle of this a little bit more, or even look to see if there were other killings around that time or in a 10-year span that are similar to Doris's that maybe weren't put together at the time. It was just, it was a very different world in 1958 versus today. It's been 63 years since Doris was found with her throat slashed and her body badly beaten, laying on the floor of the store she had loved so much. We have filed for a FOIA request in order to try and obtain her case file from the Vermont State Police, as we hope to review the case details and the painstaking search that Chief Floyd and Gregory Lequier conducted. 
it's important to keep Doris's story alive. Her family never had closure, and her killer remained free until their more than likely death at this point. It's important to remember cases like Doris's because science and forensics can at least put a name with the monster that attacked an innocent store owner that day in 1958. It's important for a town to gain some closure and a family to know that Doris's killer was eventually named even if they didn't ever serve time for this crime. We hope to follow up once we obtain the FOIA request and go over in detail some of the information we obtain from the request as it may shed more light and answer some questions we have regarding the murder of Doris E. Baker back on February 19th of 1958. With that said, we would like to dedicate this episode to the memory of Chief Floyd Chandler and Detective Gregory Lequier. They always looked for Doris's murderer and their work and dedication to keeping her story alive and making sure they kept this case going over all those decades needs to be recognized. We thank them for all their hard work and we want their memory to also be celebrated and remembered as they never gave up on finding her killer. So we do have some notable quotes that came from some of the old articles we had read. So in a Times Argus interview from June 3rd of 1960, Chief Chandler is quoted as stating, the case is as open as it has ever been. There's just one thing I'd like to see. I want to see that guy caught. Us too. In the February 18th, 1961 Times Argus paper, there was an in-memoriam ad placed in the paper from Doris Baker's husband and her two daughters in honor of the anniversary of her murder. It read simply, quote, We think of you in silence. No eyes can see us weep. But many a silent tear we shed when others are asleep, unquote. Remembered by her husband and daughters. And so, nerdlings, we conclude this chapter of the still unsolved murder of Mrs. Doris E. Baker, a 45-year-old mother of two who never got to see her daughters grow up. Perhaps in time, we will finally be able to close the last few pages of Doris's story, and we will all know just what happened to her that fateful night in 1958. And if you liked this episode, or any of our others, feel free to leave us a review on iTunes or your preferred podcast subscriber. You can also hit us up on our Instagram at CrimeTimeNerds or check our case notes out at CrimeTimeNerds.com where we post references and photos of all of our cases. We also have a Twitter account, which is at CrimeTimeNerds and an email you can reach us at, which is CrimeTimeNerds at gmail.com. Until next time, you crime-loving nerds. <laughs>